Let's turn to Luke 4 tonight. Luke 4. We started Luke 4 last week, and uh, that's where we had the temptation of our Lord. It's called the temptation. Our Lord could not be tempted, but Satan had his day and, of course, got nowhere with our Lord. There was nothing in our Lord to be tempted. That's the thing that people don't understand. They think that he was tempted like we are, and possibly he could have chosen wrong. No, it wasn't like that. He didn't have that nature that could uh, even deliberate upon right or wrong. The scriptures were always in his mind, and he answered by the scriptures. But tonight our study is, is one of my favorites in here. And uh, let's read, uh, we'll start reading from verse 14 down through verse 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Let's bow our heads. Father, we tread upon sacred ground each time we read thy word. But could this be more sacred, the beginning of our Lord's ministry, the beginning of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? What a wonder to stand on the threshold of grace. He came to preach to the poor. How wonderful the place that preaching has in thy plan of salvation. Lord, teach our hearts tonight. The scriptures that we read, just burn them into our hearts and souls. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this takes place immediately after the so-called temptation in the wilderness. Uh, I have, I, I have a, a mind that asks questions about things in the Scripture. Like in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. You see, that temptation started off in the wilderness. 
we found that he, even up there in verse 9, it says he brought him to Jerusalem. Uh, there are mysterious things about this association of Christ and Satan together, Christ letting him bring him to Jerusalem. It don't say how they got there, but it has to be in a fashion that you and I know nothing about. But when it was over, it says he returned in the power of the Spirit. He probably just appeared, speed of thought, into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about, and I don't know what that's about. What kind of fame? What wasn't it just because of his appearance? Or did word get out that there was a little conflict between him and... I don't know. It don't tell us that. It just flat says, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. That's interesting. He must have went to more than one. And we don't know what this early teaching was. And verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth. Now we're getting down to something we understand. That's the hometown. That's where he was brought up. He's from Nazareth. Mary and Joseph went down from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Christ was born in Bethlehem, and they went back to Nazareth as soon as her, he was circumcised, and her days of purification were over so she could travel, which was approximately 40 days total. After the birth of Christ, they headed back, for Nazareth. Let me show that to you. Well, it's right here. Back up one page, two pages. Back up two pages to Luke 2 and verse 39. Luke 2, 39. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city Nazareth. Isn't that just as clear and simple as can be? And that's where he was brought up from there on. But in the book of Matthew, we have a little incident that they had to leave Nazareth for a while, temporarily, to go to Egypt because Herod was out to kill the young child that the wise men had notified him of. And so they did go to Egypt for a while, and we have no history of that. We have no information about how they went there, when they went there, when they come back, but they did. And all of that was after the wise men visited their house in Nazareth. That's where the wise men went. Of course, he gave, then the wise men gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They had enough money to make that trip to Egypt and back. The Lord provides. He didn't uh, break them. They didn't have to mortgage their home, sell the business, but they did have to leave. Okay. Verse 16 again, Luke 4, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. His custom, when did it start? Probably as a child. Now, our Lord is 
approximately 30 years old when this takes place. He had been reading for at least 20 years. I wonder how it feels to read what you have written. This is his word. He didn't have to read it. He could have quoted it. He is the one, or the, his spirit is what inspired these writings to the writers to start with. Our Lord knew every scripture in this book. Amazing. But it was still his custom to go to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, the same way it should be our custom to come to church on the Lord's day to hear preaching. There are things that the flesh does not like, but there are things that the flesh has to be beaten down to do because God's word tells you that that's the thing to do. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The Lord meets with his people in groups. The Lord meets with his people singularly. Okay, so he goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath day and he stood up to read because that was his custom. I wonder if he was the best reader there. Probably was. Is there anything that God isn't the best at? His voice was probably like no voice you ever heard. His reading and his diction was perfect. Had to be. He's God. So they let him have that job of reading. Of all things, he's not the minister. He's not the, the head honcho there. He's merely a member. That's amazing. 30 years old. Verse 17 says, They delivered unto him the book of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, what was written? First of all, let's turn to Isaiah 61 and read what was in the Old Testament, how it was written. Isaiah 61, 1, and then we'll come back and read it the way the Lord wanted to read it. Because it's different, just a little bit different, doesn't mean it's misinterpreted or it hasn't been translated right. The Holy Spirit has the liberty to explain or bring out clearer features at any time. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And here is something he did not say. And the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't bring that in. Our Lord was not here to declare the day of vengeance. He was here to bring good tidings to bring the gospel in, to comfort all that mourn. Now let's read how he said it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. Now that's a whole new area there. He didn't say that at all in Isaiah, but he, he put it in there. And to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now in this list of things that our Lord mentions, the very first thing is preaching. Of course, in order to preach, you should be anointed. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Over in Isaiah, it says, the Spirit of the Lord God. We had then the Trinity being announced. We have the Spirit announced, the Lord being announced as the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father. All three are in that announcing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here he just says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this is referring to God the Father, who is also Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. So preaching is listed first, and I have a few scriptures to show you the importance of the simple thing of preaching in God's economy. Turn to 1 Corinthians one twenty one. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now, don't let that confuse you, all those words of wisdom and so forth. Here's exactly what that means. God's wisdom decreed that man could not learn about God through normal education. Man's wisdom, which is man's learning, does not acquaint him with God. Okay, that's exactly what it means. So then the rest of the verse explains how you get to know God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. People have to be saved. In order to be saved, they have to believe. In order to believe, they have to hear the gospel. To hear the gospel, it has to be preached. So many, many things. And yet such a simple, simple way of salvation. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Something so simple as a sinner standing before others and telling them how God saves the sinner. They all wonder, how does he know that? What has happened to him? What's different about him? Why is he a preacher? That's good questions. It's marvelous questions. It's deep questions. I talked to Donna the other day at school after Mr. Fletcher had had a meeting there uh, with young kids and clergymen and school board members, and Mr. Fletcher is a 
wonderful speaker. His mind is clear. He doesn't forget. He doesn't even need notes. He can just talk. And most of the teachers can. Teachers are great talkers. They're great speakers. But they go to school for that. They're taught. They learn. They have they are learned in those things. They take speech. They take rudiments of speech. They take all the classes to help them develop these things. That's not necessary with a preacher. Oh, the world says it is. Oh, yeah. There are so many circles that say, oh, unless you come from a seminary, unless you have a decree, unless you do this or do that thing, then you're not qualified to be a minister. You poor folks have a minister that learns nothing but what he has learned from the Bible. Nothing but what he has learned by experience from God's Holy Spirit. A life, practically, of being led by God's Spirit up one hill and down another. Through one valley, around a mountain, and into another valley, up one mountain and down another. I have learned by God leading me. And some of you folks know me since I was uh, a young man, seeking the Lord, crying unto the Lord, raising a family, being in this wicked world, being polluted by the world at the same time, and yet God slowly, no hurry, developing the preacher, the one who's talking to you tonight. Foolishness of preaching. Seems foolish to a lot of folks. In fact, if you look up there in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, the thing that's foolish to the normal, natural heart is the fact that we need a substitute, one who died for us on Calvary. And here's what it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. All right, let's look at Romans now, chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16. Romans 1, 15 and 16. This is Paul talking about him preaching, talking about the gospel that he preaches. He says, so as much as, in, as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto, every, unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right, now we have one more scripture about preaching and turn to 2 Timothy 4.2. 2 Timothy 4.2. This is the last book that Paul wrote. He wrote it to his beloved son in the gospel. <clears throat> Not his son, 
by natural procreation, but, <coughs> excuse me, a son in the gospel. And he tells him, in verse 2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Now, preach the word leads the list. That's the most important thing. And by preaching is how you reprove and rebuke and exhort. So the position or place of preaching is first in our lives. How did you and I get interested in salvation, true salvation? It had to be through preaching. Somebody we heard. Very few people are convicted or convinced by just reading the Bible. But it happens. Oh, don't, don't rule that out. But I'm saying you and I heard a preacher. You and I had to think of what that preacher said. And that was the beginning of our way to Christ. All right, back to our scripture in uh, Luke 4.18. Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This gospel. What is the gospel? Paul gives us a little definition not the full one, but it's a pretty good one. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. Here's what he preached. By which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. That's substitution. According to the scriptures, he did that. He not only did it in reality, he did it according to the scriptures. And then he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. You see, God's word plays such an important part in uh, preaching. He preached the gospel, and all of it was according to the scriptures. Now, there's more to the gospel than just that, because there's an important witness. And he goes on to tell you that, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve. And after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. I just wonder where that was and how that took place. But we don't know. And, and Paul tells us, Of whom the greater part remain under this present. But some are fallen asleep. Well, I guess out of 500 people there would be a few that would die. And he says, And after that he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. So that's 
all part of Paul's gospel. Now, while you're there in Corinthians, look at 2 Corinthians 4, 2 and 3. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now a little bit more about the preaching of the gospel. Turn to Ephesians. 6.19 Ephesians 6.19 And for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Well what kind of mystery are we talking about? We'll turn to Colossians 1.27, just a few pages to your right. Colossians 1.27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, until the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sending of the Comforter on the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit did not indwell people. This is what makes the resurrection so terribly important to us because now a different dispensation, a different happening, God the Spirit indwelling the people that come to Christ for salvation. That's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, now, that was the gospel being preached, and now he said he came to preach the gospel to the poor. That's interesting. How do you describe a poor person? You mean only to beggars, only to those homeless ones, only to those that... Uh, don't work and don't have anything? No, I think we can find out a little information in 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 through 8. 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 8. This is Hannah. Words of a lady. Imagine the honor, the honor of a woman having her words put down in God's eternal book. Great. There aren't very many characters as gracious as Hannah in all the scriptures. And yet she was just a sinner saved by grace. But listen to her. Verse 6, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. 
The Lord maketh poor. Oh, that's how you get poor, huh? The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. When he makes them poor, where does he put them? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. Okay, he brings them down to the dust of repentance at Christ's feet. And lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill. Well, some of us have escaped the dust and landed on the dunghill, and that's where the Lord found us. But that's who the preaching is for, for those in the dust, those on the dunghill, that need to know Christ. Now, our Lord says that it's a blessing to be poor. Let's look at Matthew 5, 3. He said, very, very blessed are these folks that are poor. Poor in a pocketbook? No, we're not talking that way. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How great, then, to be poor in spirit. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians one twenty six. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. This will kind of explain to you that not all people are poor, particularly poor in spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, that means after the flesh, and not many noble are called. You see, God makes poor people poor in spirit. They are the ones that get called. You see, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's get back to Luke see what the next thing is. We found that he, first of all, was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, and now we see that he was sent to heal the brokenhearted. What kind of broken heart is this? You lost your wife in an accident. Your father died of cancer. Your child was injured at school. That's sorrow of the world. It'll break your heart. That's a heartbreaking, but it's called sorrow of the world. And then there's a godly sorrow, a godly heartbreaking. And that's the kind that Christ came to heal. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7. Look at verse 9. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 9. And we're going to just read a little story about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. <coughs> we're going to let the Apostle Paul explain to us the difference. Verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, 
but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. You see, people that sorrow in the world don't repent of anything. They don't cry unto God because of their sin. They don't cry unto God because of their carelessness or unthinking or their unthankfulness or their gratefulness to the Lord Jesus Christ for being their substitute. That doesn't enter into worldly sorrow. Paul says, hey, you sorrowed to repentance. The greatest thing that could happen. Verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death, and bring it down to the grave. Many folks have mourned their way right into the grave. For behold this selfsame thing. He's going to describe now godly sorrow. That ye sorrowed after a godly sort. For what carefulness it wrought in you. What's it mean? You were careful of what you said. You were careful of what you looked at. You were careful about what you listened to. You were careful of every step you took. Careful not to offend God. You were walking on eggs because of that deceitful heart you have. You know that any time it could carry you right to the brink of hell. Carefulness in you. Yea, what? Clearing of yourselves. Yea, what? Indignation. I just can't stand myself. The thoughts that I have. What, how do I control this? Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire after Christ. Desire to know him. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Revenge on yourself. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going there anymore. I'm not going to see that person anymore. Revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Ye sorrowed unto repentance. Isn't that great? Great to have these things explained to us. That's about the brokenhearted. Now, strangely enough, the scripture we used this morning has the same thing in it. Look at Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 through 4. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Mourning about what? Mourning about your sin. At least you'll have serious, good thoughts about eternity. You cannot help but think about sin, your being the sinner, and the thoughts of eternity. That will turn your heart to mourning. Mourning over how do you get out of this situation. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made bitter. Serious thinking. There's a lot of foolish laughter in the world. I am guilty of that. I am guilty of making people laugh but it isn't so much to detract their minds from the spiritual. If I can get them to laugh and then think of spiritual things, it would be great. The sadness of the countenance of the heart is made bitter. You think about Christ. 
Think about the joy set before him, the joy when he should have been thinking of sorrow. When we think of conflict and uh, affliction, it's a sorrowful thinking to us. To our Lord Jesus Christ, there was joy to him. And then verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, and the reason why is they never leave it. They continually seek to laugh, to drink, to joke, and to put off spiritual things, and that would be the reason. I think we're running out of time, and we'll come back here next week to finish up. We still have deliverance for the captives, sight to the blind, and liberty to them that are bruised. And I certainly thought I was going to finish all of that tonight, and uh, I didn't. And uh, I just hope the Lord blessed your heart tonight the way he did mine in talking about the things of the gospel, preaching, the poor, the gospel itself. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon the words said, the words read. Thy word is so wonderful, so powerful to our own hearts. Oh, to be more like any of the apostles. Oh, to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, tomorrow morning will find us being the very same person, with the same weaknesses, the same, the same heart, and yet a desire in that heart waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come and give us our new bodies. Lord, what a magnificent hope. A hope that one day we will never sin. A hope that we'll just be like thee continually. Just to be like thee. Just to be in thy presence. Never to leave the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our lover, our savior, our deliverer, our redeemer our substitute sacrifice. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ tonight. Need thy guidance each day, wisdom to live, protection on the roads, and bring us back again Wednesday evening. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.